You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Jim Shooter, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hi there, and welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is an exclusive interview with Jim Shooter. Many of you know as editor-in-chief and he and a quite a prolific writer as well. Um, he wrote the, the Avengers for a brief period of time in the 70s, which uh, if you listen to the episode Avengers The Final Threat, we talk about the first half of his Avengers run. And this interview is to complement that episode. I talked to Jim for about an hour. And he had some incredibly interesting things to say about the quote-unquote political snake bed uh, that Marvel was in the 70s. Um, He doesn't pull any punches, uh, and it's quite fascinating. So you'll want to listen to this and then check out the episode Avengers The Final Threat. This episode is available because you are a $5 Patreon uh, supporter, and we thank you for that. Um, This episode will be released later on down the road uh, for the general public. But by that time, I should have, you know, four more exclusive interviews for you guys to listen to well ahead of everybody else. So thanks for your support. Hello, Jim. This is Curtis Findlay. Hi, I'm doing really well. Thanks for taking my call and uh, and your willingness to spend some time talking to me today. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like um, in the mid-70s, uh, leading up to this period when you were writing for Avengers? Well, I was, um, you know, I, I lived in Pittsburgh, and uh, I was doing freelance. I had a day job. I was doing uh, freelance advertising work, all the comic book format, so technically I was still doing comics. Because I was the kid who did comics, see? So advertising agencies that needed anything comics format came to me. And I did ads for U.S. Steel, a lot of the big companies. Um, one, some ads for a political campaign. Uh, but that was like, you know, wasn't steady. Then, uh, let's see. Um, somehow, I got uh, Marvel Comics came to me and uh, um, I think it was Len Wein. Maybe. I think I actually met him. I think he was at the Pittsburgh convention. Anyway, after I met him, then I got a call one day uh, asking me if I would uh, do a fill-in, you know. And uh, so I did. I wrote the thing. And it's totally unfriendly with Marvel style. No idea what I was doing. (laughs) all the work at DC I'd done this full script right. and I actually did the, did the layouts to go with it and all of a sudden I'm you know I send in a plot thinking oh they're going to approve the plot and then I'll write a script and the next thing you know artwork comes oh, you, know? No. <laughs> you know what am I supposed to do with this you know and so um, 
So I, but I did a couple. I think I did an Iron Man. I think I did a uh, super villain team up or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, um, so I was like, you know, sort of a distant stringer from Marvel. And then, uh, and then uh, one day, uh, well, I actually started working for DC. DC, I went to visit Marvel, actually, because a friend of mine knew somebody there, and they called me, and they said, come up and see us. The guy's name was Duffy Voland. He represented himself as an editor. I said, oh, okay. The editor invited me to come up to Marvel. Duffy wasn't an editor. He was like an assistant in the British department, you know. I mean, but, <laughs> you know, he was a fan, and he wanted me to come, and, and I didn't know that. But he did get me in the sea boy, Thomas. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, like... Uh, Marvel made me an offer, but it really wasn't anything I wanted to do with Man Wolf. And uh, so I was at the lunch with the Marvel guys, you know, because we all they always have went out to Brew Burger or something together. And uh, they said, "Well, you try DC." And I said, uh, "But you can't work both sides of the street." I mean, in my day, in the '60s, that was forget it. I mean, right, the competition. If they caught you working for the other guys, you're fired. Right. You know? So uh, they said, oh, no, it's different now. So I went over to DC, and they offered me Superman and Legion Superheroes, which I actually had heard of, and finally ended up taking that gig. Um, so anyway, then uh, sometime at the end of 1975, uh, Marv Wolfman, who was the new, well, new, he, he was the current editor-in-chief of Marvel, uh, he called me up out of the blue, and he said that he was looking for a uh, an assistant, and uh, assistant to him, not just you know assistant editor. And was I interested? Because some guy named Chris Claremont was leaving, you know. All right. <laughs> so, uh, so I said, all right, you know, well, I'll come up and you know be interviewed, I guess. So I flew up to New York and. Uh, um, my appointment with Marv was at 10 a.m. So I walk in the door. I'm always early, probably 9.30. And all the editorial staff, and the editorial staff in those days consisted of what of assistant editors, okay? And what they were was proofreaders, okay. all right? All right, basically. So I walk in, and somebody says, the new boss is here. I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> and, um, and so... Uh, he said, well, can you help us? So, well, what should we do with this? So, how do we fix that? I'm like, uh, I don't even work here yet. You know? Wow. Anyway, Marv wasn't there. So I, uh, I said, well, I'm down. So I sat down and I uh, proofread a, uh, an issue of Captain Marvel. <laughs> you know, marked it up the way I've been taught to mark things up. And and all the time they're coming over and asking me questions. Well, what do you think about this? Should, you know, do you think this needs to be changed? Like, I'm... You know, guys, I don't, I don't know. You know. Wow. Anyway, so I did the best. I did the best I could. Marv strolls in at about uh, near noon, and he sees me there. He says, "Oh, you know." He says, "Oh, well, I'm going to lunch now, but you know, we'll talk later." <laughs> okay. So off he goes with Len Wein, who came in the office, and they went off to lunch. So I went out to lunch with the assistant editors, you know. Again, <laughs> and uh, you know, we talked, and, and 
I came back, and then Marv came in, and he was ready to talk to me. He offered me a, a job, and it was, it was very strange because he said, look, he said, as it is now, you know, the writer sends a plot to the artist, the artist sends the pages of the writer, the writer writes the dialogue, he sends it to the letterer, the letterer sends it to the anchor, and it comes into the office finished. And then all the assistant editors have to try to fix the mistakes on the finished boards. <laughs> and I said, well, that's not good. And uh, he said, so I invented a new position. So I call it a pre-proofer. I said, what? <laughs> pre-proofer. He said, see, what it'll do is when the job is still in pencil with a the script, then he'll check it then. So we don't have to be making as many collections once it's inked and lettered. Right. I said, so you want an editor? He said, what? I said, this is, you want me to be the editor? He said, no, I'm the editor. I said, no, you're the editor-in-chief. I said, you want me to be the line editor? He said, well, I don't want to call you editor, because then, you know, I'm, I'm the editor. I don't care what you call me. So he said, well, you'll be the associate editor. I said, I, I don't give a damn. Whatever. You know, pay me. I don't care. <laughs> right. And um, so that's how I started. And so I came in, I was like, goodbye, I think the first working day of 1976. And uh, started being the associate editor and started actually editing things, which surprised a lot of people because no one had ever done that before. Even Claremont, I mean, he didn't want to get any in any fights with Minch or Ween or, you know, Engelhardt or anybody. He just, like, laid low and processed the stuff through. I love Chris, but he's not a combative fellow or anything like that. Um, and, uh, you know, he wasn't going to get into that. And as a, matter, as a matter of fact, that's why he left that job as soon as he could. As soon as he got some freelance, he said, I'm out of here, right? Okay. So uh, then, then I came in. All right, so the place, trying to characterize the place, was a snake pit. It was a snake pit. It was all political. There were like Roy's guys, Lennon Marv's guys. They're at war. They're always picking at each other and trying to get the other one in trouble. I told this story many times that Tony Isabella, who was one of Roy's guys, used to table letters to Stan's door. I'd come in in the morning. I was always the first one there. I'd see this letter taped to Stan's door. Mm-hmm. So uh, 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 it turned out one day Stan calls me into his office. Says He says, I got this letter. I'm like, uh-oh. And uh, he said, read it. And there was a letter from Tony Isabella to Stan describing all the crimes that Len Marv and his people had committed the day before. Oh, wow. And he said, what do you, he said, what do you think of it? I said, look, I don't want to get in, you know, into this. He said, no. He said, what do you think of the writing? <laughs> I said, well, it's, you know, it's pretty good. It's compact. It's, you know, makes his points. It's, you know, pretty well organized. He said, yeah, I think the guy writes. I think he writes pretty well. <laughs> okay. He said, is he doing any work for us? And at that time, I think Tony had like three books or something. I don't know champions, something else, I don't know. Anyway, Ghost Rider, I remember that. And uh, he said, he's one well, guy who's working for us. I said, yeah, well, yeah, he is, okay. And he said, okay, that's all. So I went back, <laughs> sat on my little desk, feeling like, like a general half-track, like what the hell is going on now? Anyway, I was never a part of any of these factions, really. I guess I had some small loyalty to Marv because he hired me. 
you know, I was like the outsider. I didn't know who I was supposed to hate and who I wasn't supposed to hate. And so, therefore, nobody liked me. <laughs> so, this is the atmosphere. You ready? That's the atmosphere I'm in. Wow. Uh, and I wasn't making all that much money. And everybody, in those days, if you weren't staff, you could also do freelance. And so I kept asking for freelance. And uh, there just wasn't any writing available. And I don't think anybody was going to give me any anyway. Uh, but I did do some freelance coloring. You know, like they got desperate and... So I'd have to color 20 pages overnight, something like that, you know, because they'd come down with a wire and there was not a living human being. And I did know how to color. I had been taught at D.C. And um, so anyway, I was struggling along there. And then uh, finally, Marv is fired. You know, Marv and a lot of other people will tell you that, no, he just decided to leave. And that's not true. Uh, the president told me otherwise. Uh he was allowed to leave in a dignified way, that is, to become a writer-editor. Uh, so first Roy was going to replace him. And Roy came in, and he was going to clean house. He was going to get rid of all the Glenmar people and, you know, bring in his people. Wow. And I had an interview with him, and I said, look, if you want to replace me, I understand. It's fine. It's nice. Give me some freelance. He said, no, nah, I like you. You can stay. All right. Huh. So, uh, so then... Uh, at the last minute, Roy decides not to take the job. And like, like, like that day, Stan says, Terry Conway, because he had once promised Jerry the job long ago and never delivered. So he called Terry Conway, who worked at BC. And like the next day, Jerry Conway is the editor in chief. Well, wow. Jerry was a Jerry was a Roy guy, <laughs> so the Lenmarv guys were really upset. Right. Um, and uh, so. Jerry uh, came into a very hostile environment, and uh, Jerry had some hostility of his own, don't get me wrong, but uh, uh, he actually was trying to do the job. He was trying to get things on time, trying to get people to, you know, do what he, they were supposed to do and stuff. And that was, like I said, a place was a snake pit. It was a political nightmare. It was a, it was a mess. Everything was late. Everything was tragically late. And so Jerry starts trying to get people to, you know, uh, like a, a guy had four books and he was only delivering three a month. Take three, you know. And if you can go faster than that, catch up on the three, and then we'll give you a fourth one. So the worst problem was a guy named Steve Englehart. You perhaps have heard of him. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, so um, I don't remember which books Engelhart was writing to several. Avengers was one. Captain America was one. Not sure what else. Um, but he was perennially late. Uh, the year before I got there, uh, Avengers, a monthly book. Uh, I think that four of them were unscheduled reprints, and one or two might have been filling. I'm not sure, but anyway, he did not deliver 12 issues. Yeah. He delivered no more than eight, maybe less. So that was bad. Right. So I remember Jerry getting on the phone with him and having these conversations. And I sat right outside Jerry's office. I heard every word, at least from Jerry's end. And he was the most reasonable guy on earth. He said, Steve, you know, you can't be late like this. We have to we'll work something out. You're not going to lose any money. You're doing, you're working every day as much as you can work. How could you lose any money? You know, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, 
anyway, uh, there was a conversation or two like that. And uh, Steve doesn't take well to authority. <laughs> and uh, so finally, Jerry, we had Avengers 150 coming up. And he's, Jerry drew the red line in the sand. He said, if this thing isn't here on whatever day, he said, then we're going to get somebody else to write it. So, sure enough, it didn't run. Yeah. And uh, it, the thing is, it's like tragically late, possibly late. And Jerry came to me and he said, uh, can you write this book overnight? Because he had the art. Remember, Marvel, plot, art, then the script. Right. So what we needed was the script part. All right. And I said, okay. So I went home and I, I stayed up all night. I did the best I could. And I wrote the script for Avengers 150. And uh, then, uh, um, okay, now the pages are in production. They're being inked. They're being lettered on vellum at the same time. Every time a page is inked, it's being colored. Everything is going on at once with my script. All right? Yep. Then about a week later, Steve's script arrives. Uh oh. <laughs> and so Jerry, he really, really wanted to keep Steve. And he knew if that 150 went out with my name on it, that was probably the end. So he said, All right, we're going to do Steve's script. And so they scrapped everything they did on mine. Oh, man. And they started again. Brutal. On vellum, all this stuff. So anyway, got, got done, went out and put Steve's name. I, I read both of them. I think mine was better. Said the point. Um, Anyway, that didn't help. Uh, there was another conversation. Steve quit. Starlin quit in sympathy for Steve. Uh, you know, all this stuff was happening. Wow. So after about three weeks, this is all in three weeks. Three weeks, Jerry says, I can't, this is too frustrating. He couldn't get rid of the people he wanted to get rid of, like Lynn and Marv, because they were too entrenched and they had stands here. He lost the people he wanted to keep. It's like Engelhart and Starlin and I don't know who else. And he just, the frustration hit a peak and he just said, screw this. So he left to be a writer. He had a contract, in order to make enough money, he had a contract to write eight books a month. Wow. There's exactly one human I know who could write eight or more books a month, and that's Stan. Because uh, Stan wrote like about 12 a month for 10 years. Right. Uh, and I don't, I cannot fathom that. But anyway, um, <laughs> so Jerry starts out to write a bunch of books, among them the Avengers. Yeah. All right. Uh, a lot of work had to be, Archie Goodwin was brought in to replace him. It's the third time I was passed over, but that's okay. Right. Archie also decided to keep me. Uh, so Archie Goodwin came in as, as editor. Um, uh, he uh, had to give Jerry eight books, which meant that he had to take books away from Claremont, Minch, Mantlow, other people. So they formed the Citizens Vigilance Committee. Oh, man. And they got themselves a meeting with Stan. Now, this is how clever Jerry is. Jerry found out about this, showed up, talked to those guys, and convinced them he was on their side. <laughs> okay. And so he went with them into the meeting with Stan. And it changed the demand into give us our books back. He changed it into make more work. 
the stand really didn't have any authority in those days. He never had much authority when, you know, when I was involved with Marvel at all. But he was Stan, and so right. anybody, you know, if he told you to join the Boy Scouts, we'd be out rubbing sticks together someplace. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so he told the president of the company, Golden, uh, Stan wasn't even on the organizational chart, but he was Stan, see, so it didn't matter. Uh, so he told the president of the company, we've got to make up some, some work for these guys. So I don't know if you remember, but that's when they introduced those Marvel classics that were so horrible. Right, yeah. They worked for Mench, Mench and Claremont, so make work. And then also Archie tried to get them to do some fill-in stuff, just to try to keep them busy. Well, the bottom fell out, because Jerry couldn't do eight books a month. Before you know it, he's hiring Don Glute and his wife, Carla, to write books. And they were paying Jerry Conway rates and getting Don Glute. No offense to Don. But, you know, that's not right. Yeah. So, uh, and then on top of that, he still wasn't making a schedule. So things got tragically late. And then uh, there's an issue of Avengers, my first one. I can't remember what it was. What was that, 155 or something? It's 156. The Private War of Doctor Doom. Okay, one fifty-six. Anyway, so Jerry plotted it. They just came in. It's late, and the thing is, Jerry admitted to Archie he couldn't possibly do the script. However, Jerry remembered what a good job I did on one fifty, and he recommended me. I wrote the script. Uh, I think as a result of that, I guess that went pretty well. Uh, and Jerry was not likely to be making any schedules. So Archie just said, well, keep writing. Um, there had been a, uh, also a problem with, uh, Tony Isabella who quit and went to DC having nothing to do with me. Well, actually maybe having something to do with me because I was editing his scripts and he didn't like it. Uh, but, uh, uh, Tony had left. And there was no one to do Ghost Rider. And I can't remember who was doing Daredevil, but there was no one to do Daredevil. So all of a sudden, after having nothing for a couple of years, they gave me both of those. Nice. So, uh, so, so I was writing Ghost Rider, Daredevil, and Avengers. Oh, and by the way, I had a full-time job, which was impossible. Wow. Because my, my job was to edit 45 comics a month. 45 Right. Holy now, holy. a really good editor with an assistant who edit five, maybe six. A really good editor with an assistant. Okay, I'm editing 45. Guess what? Some of them got neglected. Right. But, uh, well, I mean, some of them you didn't have to worry about. Anything. Archie wrote was fine. Gerber's stuff was pretty tight. You know, Roy's was usually good. Like, almost always good. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't have to worry about some of them. But still, a lot of work. And uh, and then I'd, so I'd work. I'd be there at seven in the morning. I'd get home at nine o'clock at night, right. and I'd write three books. It's actually I think two of them were bi-monthly, so it was two books a month. Um. Anyway, so that's how I got started on Avengers because there wasn't anybody else, and you know, and uh, I was available, and I was a sucker, and I'd write teams overnight. That's and, just uh, crazy. You know, <laughs> that's just you nice. know, I was young. I was stupid. Sleep didn't matter as much, you know. Now I sleep a lot. Yeah. So, um, when you started on Avengers, 
you kind of got thrown in there. So you were left kind of tying up a lot of Jerry's plots. Um, yeah. were, were you, uh, were you thinking ahead and saying, I just got to hurry up and, and tie these up so that I can get onto stuff that I really want to do? Or were you saying, um, I just want to, um, carry on and develop what Jerry already started? Well, my, you know, the way I was trained, and this is way back in the days before everything got rebooted on a whim. I mean, my, I saw my job is to, you know, grow it organically. I mean, I wasn't going to undo anything or try to undo anything that my predecessors did. I tried to use what, whatever Jerry and, and, uh, and Lark and whoever had left me. I did want to slowly shift the focus because I felt that it, Avengers had, had sort of lost its focus to Earth's Mightiest Heroes, you know, like there's a bunch of guys in here that are don't qualify. <laughs> and uh, so I decided, well, you know, let's let's get back to, you know, Earth's Mightiest Heroes. And people, the writers before me, they, they were less interested in using Thor and Iron Man and, you know, the others because, the other big stars, because they... Uh, they, I think they felt that, you know, it was too much having to try to keep track of the continuity in, the other, in their own books. Okay. Too much work, you know, and and so it was much easier just to make up a bunch of characters that, you know, only you were using, you know. Right. And, yes, uh, that makes sense. You know, and I, I thought, well, that's not, the, that, no, no, that's not what this book's about. I worked in the office, so I was privy to what was going on in the other books, so I could work with them, you know. And I tried to, as best I could, use what, you know, uh, they were doing and make the adventures better. I'll give you a good example. Shortly after I started doing the adventures, uh, Jim Starlin uh, was asked uh, to uh, do uh, three annuals. Right. One was the Avengers annual, Marvel 2 and 1. An Iron Man, I believe. He was going to make them all into one big story uh, with Thanos as the bad guy. Yeah. And, you know, and, and he used a lot of characters, uh, which in a way was like, you know, sort of like, you know, a baby sequel wars, except that in those days, even though nobody wanted to work hard enough except me. I'm the only idiot in the group who uh, wanted to keep track of the continuity and tried to make it all fit in. And then, you know, so his was his story was great. It's just off to the side, like they always are these days. It didn't really have much to do with what was going on in the regular books. Right. And uh, it was a good story, and uh, it had a lot of good juice in it, and stuff. Some stuff I used, for instance, for instance, the Beast was in the Avengers, right? Yeah. I remember Jim coming in with like the one of the first batches of stuff, which I was editing because I was an associate editor, and uh, and we're talking. And uh, he's talking about how uh, the beast would be like a sex symbol because like, he's all furry and stuff and would turn the girls on. And I'm like, what girl do you know? <laughs> no, I said, what? What girls do you know? So, well, you know, I tried to wrap my head around that. I'm like, well, yeah, okay, you know, it's kind of, you know, maybe it's kinky, I don't know. So anyway, that's an idea of his, which appeared, which was traumatized in his little free issue, little, his three annual-sized issue story, mm-hmm. I picked it up. 
said, okay. He's like kind of a rock star. He's weird and he's kinky and he's crazy. You know? And uh, and also the fact is that what makes it good is he's so smart and well spoken. You know, it's like uh, you know. So I played with it. I said, yeah, I can work with this. You know, and I did. So I thought I made it make sense. Um, Jim just did it kind of matter of factly, like, well, everybody would think that. And I'm like, oh uh, no. But but uh, and I had a couple times I had to be sort of surprised that he, you know, people like it, that they don't, they're not scared. You know that that he's big, done enough heroic stuff, and he's cool enough, and he's he's hip enough that you know, yeah, you know, they don't just run at the side of him. And so I, that worked for me. I mean, and I did a lot of stuff like that. I tried to pick up on stuff, make it work, or if it didn't work, phase it out. Like have it not work, and then have the character change as a result of it or whatever. And uh, you know, I tried to really. Uh, I thought the Avengers is the ultimate team book. Like, the FF is a family. The X-Men are a group. But uh, this is a team. You know, they're, they're a bunch of guys that are all on their own. They're all good on their own. They come together to solve bigger problems. And uh, so I try to, you know, I also, I mean, I read and reread and reread all of the stuff that Stan and Jack did. I skipped a lot of the stuff in the middle. But I, I, and I found the characters. Because every, everything Stan and Jack did, it's like, not only did they introduce the characters, not only did they give you an idea of who these guys were when they walked on stage, just like every TV writer and every movie writer and every novel writer and every writer in the world except comic book writers, who for some reason, I don't know what the hell's wrong with them. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, I, not only did I see them introduce the characters, but every time you saw the characters, they showed you who they were. I was like, I am going to, you know, remember this. Like uh, Captain America, the first time he appears, which is issue four, maybe. I don't know. Yep. And uh, and there's a, he, he doesn't remember Submariner. And Submariner's attacking. And Captain America tries to stop him. Well, Submariner's hugely strong. So he grabs Captain America by the back of the belt, and he picks him up, and he's about to smash him to death on the rocks. Okay? Okay. Oh. <laughs> Captain America's thought is, he's stronger than me, but I'll find a way to outmaneuver him. What? <laughs> that's I mean, just his. That's, that's just who he is. You know? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he will overcome. Yeah. By the way, there's a scene with Thor where he's using his hammer to generate magnetism to raise a sunken spaceship. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And Iron Man says, I can't believe it, you did it. And Thor's like, yeah, well, wasn't that my intention? Right. Of course I did. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm God. It's okay. Yeah. And Iron Man, when 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 they're fighting the Hulk and Submariner uh, under Gibraltar somewhere, um, Giant Man can't handle Submariner, but he throws him toward Thor. Okay. Iron Man intercepts him, and he stops him with his repulsor beams. And he says, "No, no, Thor's too angry. I don't want him to hurt you." Right. <laughs> And Submariner takes advantage of that and punches Iron Man and breaks his armor. Of course. <laughs> see, so, see, Iron Man is a pragmatist, but he's also compassionate. Yeah, and you get the feeling, because you struggle a lot with, um, or Iron Man struggles a lot with being the team leader at this, yeah. during your run here. Um, because of the compassion, he's not the... Yeah, and it's not like running a corporation, see? I mean, he, he can make a phone call and close the plant in Jersey and put a thousand people out of work, because he has to. Right, but he also 
uh, would save Submariner from Thor's wrath. Wrath, you know. I mean, that's the kind of guy he is. He, he has compassion, but he's pragmatic, and he'll do what he has to do. Yeah. You know, I had a story I wrote once that Alan Weiss where it comes down to either kill the molecule man or he destroys the world, right? And uh, uh, Iron Man, you know, the surfer's too noble. Thor can't do it, you know. Captain America says, hey, he has rights. He can't. Rights? He's going to kill the world. Iron Man says, I'll do it. Wow. Um, the most compassionate man on earth yeah. is the guy who's going to save the world. That's what makes them heroes. Yeah, and so I was, I, was trying, I was a student of the game. I really tried to figure it all out. I talked to Stan sometimes. Talked to Jack a few times. You know, it was, uh, I worked with Jack very closely for two and a half years. I was on the phone with him at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, for two and a half years, going over his stuff, talking to him in general. He was drawing the Avengers covers for you at the time too, right? Yeah, that was. I think that was Jerry's idea. Uh, could be Marv. Could be Marv because Marv was a big Kirby fan. Uh, but anyway, yeah, they they used to have Kirby do a lot of covers, and Jerry in particular loved the Kirby covers, and I thought they were great. Yeah, you know, I mean, Jack is was just you know, he was the king. Yeah, definitely. Um, you created Graviton early on in your run. Yep. Um, tell me about uh, creating him. What was? Uh, did he get realized the way you wanted him to be realized? Oh, pretty much. I mean, I remember, you know, uh, back when I was starting out in the 60s, uh, Stan was, you know, writing a lot of, almost all the Marvel books. And, man, it's just like every issue. It's, it's like a new villain. There's the Vulture. There's... There's the Sandman, there's Dr. Octopus, there's, you know, I mean, there's Fantastic Four. It wasn't just Dr. Doom every It was, you know, all these different uh, opponents. It was so cool. And so I tried to do that at DC. At DC, like Superman hadn't had a new villain, you know, he's a toy man and something else. Yeah. You know, Lex Luthor for like 100 years. And I kept trying to come up with villains like the Parasite or whoever, you know. And, uh, uh, and, you know, he's in the same thing. I kept trying to, you know, to, like, stand it, you know? And, and uh, uh, so, uh, you know, so I'm on the Avengers, and there hadn't been a lot of new Avengers villains, you know? Those people just like to play with the same toys again and again, and it's too lazy, or, or I don't know, I have no idea. But I just like, nope, I'm going to try to create some new bad guys. Right. And so I'm trying to think of, like, powers that haven't been done and stuff, and gravity. Okay. You know, I mean, uh, it, I didn't know of any characters like that. I guess you could say in the Legion of Superheroes, there was, like, Light Laugh and Starboy, but, I mean, it's not exactly the same. So, um, so I thought, I'd gra- you know, this Gravity guy. I remember hanging out with uh, Roger Stern, Dave Cockrum, and... Uh, when we, you know, I don't know where we were, just hanging out together or whatever. And I was telling him the story I came up with, and, you know, it's, I guess it was Gravity, though, and I don't have a name for him yet. Len said, Graviton. I said, Ton. So, <laughs> you know, that's Len, all Len. And uh, it was a good name. Yeah. You know? And uh, I said, good. And, but you know what? That was all it all the time in those days. All the time. Writers hanging around, talking to each other, helping each other out. You know, uh, 
you know, making little suggestions or whatever, just just kind of give it thing. Uh, pencilers not so much, but but anchors always had their buddies come in and help them, or they hired background guys, or you know, it was it was. No, it's just kind of normal. I mean, and so, uh, you know, and everybody helped. People helped Lynn, too. And, you know, everybody helped everybody. It was fun. And, uh, but that's that credit where credit is due. It was entirely Lynn. Just off the top of his head, boink. Yeah. And did, uh, who designed his costume? Because you're an artist as well. Did you, uh, did you sketch that out or was that? Cause... I designed pretty much everything when I was at DC. I did the layouts for every issue. I, I laid out the covers. I, did, I used to give two cover designs. Well, almost without exception, Mort would pick one of them to be the cover and, and use the other one as a splash page, um, which he always referred to as the second cover. <laughs> uh, that's, that's what he called it. And, um, but at Marvel, it just it wasn't how it was done. Nobody wanted my pathetic scribble sketches. Everybody wanted to do their thing. And so, oh, it's fine, you know, okay, I'll just, you know, I work at Marvel now. I've got to write Marvel style. I've got to, like, you know, you know, go with the flow, right. you know, try to bounce off these guys and stuff like that. And sometimes it was hard. There's one thing when you got Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko or Dick Ayers or somebody like that, and you give them a plot and they tell the story. And it's another thing when you get some bozo or a new kid. And he, he leaves the climax out. He, you know, it's in the panel gutter someplace. Right. Or, or, or he just misunderstands. Or, or you, you call for something dramatic and he draws these tepid looking people. I don't know. Anyway, I would say you had a lot to overcome in Marvel. And, uh, uh, I tried because I was the Marvel guy then. I was associate editor and eventually editor in chief. And I, so I wanted to be, you know, Mr. Marvel. In issue 160, it's called The Trial. Um, featuring the Grim Reaper, that that one had a much more of an emphasis on um, the dialogue rather than on action. Um, can you tell me a little bit about... There's some action in it, but yeah. There is some action in it for sure, absolutely, because um, I think you have to sneak that, sneak that in there. But it was, um, the, the focus was quite different than what is usually seen. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, yeah, I, I, I always thought that... Uh, that the, the the point was to tell a great story that was gripping and compelling, mm-hmm. and that action in the theatrical sense can be as good as action in the punch somebody in the face sense. So, so I uh, I never let that limit me. I have a couple of stories about that. I mean, one time, uh, you know, I was talking to Doug Minich and saying, you know, Doug, these you know these stories you're writing, they're so you know, they're thin reads. I mean, it's like, you know, or something happens, they fight for a while, something else happens, they fight for a while. He says, well, you have to have three fight issues. I said, who says? Who says? He said, well, you have to. I said, you don't have to. He said, write me a Shang-Chi story with no fight. He said, I can't do that. I said, yes, you can. I'm the boss. I'm the editor-in-chief. Write me a Shang-Chi story. So he did. And and it actually was great. Yeah. No one missed the fighting. And the fact is, he threw in a thing where uh, Chang-Chi was working out with somebody, you know, just to get some karate in there. <laughs> right. Some kung fu. I mean, and that was fine. I mean, it, it worked fine. And, and uh, you know, I did it again and again. I did it at Marvel. And, you know, I was going for some courtroom drama there. I never heard anybody complain. Oh, there's no action in this issue. Never. Right. Well, and, uh, you know, people, a lot of people, that's their favorite issue. Yeah, it stuff. is. So to me, it's like, 
you know, and also you talk about whether or not I was like sort of following up on what people could be following. I was. That was me following up on all that stuff for the Grim Reaper and Silent Silent Wings, which had been done, you know, by people before me, and I wanted to pay it off. Yeah. You know? And uh, uh, I mean, I did that all the time. And you know, you know, here's years later, but at Valiant, uh, I had a character, Pork, who was murdered by the bad guys. And it was very revolutionary because it was for the first time in the history of comic books and largely TV and movies. Um, a bad guy plots to kill the hero, right? And yeah. he jumps out from the industry, he stabs him in the back, and the hero dies. No mono a mono, no, you know, the, he, the bad guy's plan works. Stabs the guy in the back, he's dead. That would never happen before, as far as I know. Wow. So, uh, so, you know, I mean, I kept trying to do what Stan did. I never saw Spider-Man. He had a Spider-Man wanderer's costume. I never saw that before. I mean, he was always doing things that you'd never seen before. So I did that. Well, the next issue was the, the Harbinger kids. They're not going to let this guy, you know, rot in the morgue and be buried in Potter's Field. Yeah. So they go and steal the body and get a funeral director and have him a proper funeral. Every time somebody gives me that book to sign, I ask him, how'd you like the fight scene? They go, oh, it's great. I say, yeah, there's no fight scene. <laughs> well, no, yeah. there isn't. I mean, the kids are worried the bad guys might be trying to steal a body to cut it up or whatever, yeah. you know, dissect them or something. They're all this worried. They're all, there's all these potentials for confrontation. But basically, it's a drama of them burying their friend. Right. Wow, and people just assume no that it's there because it's no a, complaints. Yeah. You know, and so I did that all the time, and I thought, you know, if I can make this courtroom stuff interesting enough, oh, totally. You know, nobody will. Uh, I'm not going to get any flack, and I didn't. And so many people give me that. Yeah, uh, as a book to sign, say this is my favorite book. Wow, that's great. You know? Yeah, and so I don't know. Sometimes I did something right. It's probably an accident. And then there's the flip side where you have like the Count Nefaria uh, trilogy where it's like just a huge, the biggest battle. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. kind of constant. So you, you kind of swing both ways there. Yeah, well, part of that was because, like I said, Marvel, the artist is, has a bigger than usual role, you know. Yeah. And that was the one and only time I ever worked with John Byrne. And John was—he just really wanted to do that, you know. And yeah. I said, "Okay, I'll play to your strengths, pal." You know. And uh, so the plots I gave him encouraged that, and encouraged him to, you know, go and do stuff. You know, try to. And John got pretty creative about, it, you know, like interesting uses of powers and stuff like that. And, you know, and, and so uh, my one complaint to him was, I, I said, "You know, this is like a kung fu movie." I said, "You have all the Avengers coming to attack the area." It's like they take turns. Right. You know, one attacks them, then they're beaten. Then the next one attacks them, and then they're beaten. I said, you know, what are they doing? Just hanging around, waiting for the next guy to fall? <laughs> so I started, and when I wrote it, I, I came up with some stuff to try to cover it. I mean, like, I had the panther say that he circled around, sneaking on the rooftops, to, you know, until we you know, okay. got there and attacked. Stuff like that. I mean, I'm trying to cover it. Come on, you know, this is not a consumer. You know, you got to... Big, big picture here. You know, why aren't they all diving on him? Or, you know, how does he prevent that? Or, or how do they fail to do that? 
or, you know, or they do it and it fails or whatever, you know? Now, do you think that was because um, John Byrne had, was he, had he had a team book by that, at that point? Because he was kind of just on Iron Fist around then, right? Yeah, I, well, first of all, John was fairly new. He lived in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. So one way he was hammering the office every day, you know, hearing all we talked about. Um, and, uh, and, you know, like I said, it's fairly new. And, and his experience at Charlton and Iron Fist and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, everything he did was something new that he'd never done before. So, um, you know, I mean, he, he, he did, uh, he grew up. He, he it, 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 I think the distance and the price that could have the phone, long phone calls with him. He probably wouldn't have had that today. But yeah. uh, he'd have long phone calls with him trying to explain stuff. And, you know, when he really caught on? He, he, you know, obviously draws tremendously well and, and, and so forth, but he did tend to uh, go a little, to lose the storytelling sometimes. And uh, uh, the, the one he really caught on is when he was given the FF. Right. right. Yeah. And he went back, he told me this, he went back and he carefully read all the Stan and Jack stuff and the little light bulb went on. And he said, oh, I get it. Right. All of my talking all anyone's talking was not as good as going back and reading the first however many wow. 50 some issues of Fantastic Four again and realizing like it had to happen inside him you know he had to he had to grok himself you know right and he did and then you know then he really took off I mean then it was it was you know far different I remember this one, one panel he drew I don't know what book it was team up or something, I don't know, where he has Thor throwing his hammer at some boat that is some ship that has been tossed into the air. And first of all, you, you can't see it. You only see like a little bit of the hull. You can't tell it's a ship unless somebody tells you, right? And then he has Thor throwing his hammer, but where the hammer hits is covered by an inset panel. And like, what? <laughs> you know, he, he, like he was... In those days, I think he was. Gil Kane used to use an expression he would say about artists like that. He would say they're not picture makers. In other words, they're thinking about this detail and that detail and how cleverly they can arrange the panels and stuff like that, rather than like Kirby giving you the picture. This is my words showing you what you'd see if you were there. That's, right. That was always my mantra. And uh, that's what Jack always did. You know, Jack would do cause and effect in the same panel. He'd have the two-gun kid firing, and have the other guys and gun flying out of his hand, same panel. Right. You know, as opposed to, like, like Kenner over at D.C. Kenner had a rule. All guns must be fired at the reader. Well, that's great. So the gun is fired at the reader, and then this next panel, some guy grabs his shoulder and falls down. Did he shoot him from 10 feet away or 100 yards? No idea. <laughs> no idea. You yeah. know, we don't know. Kirby mm. would do it on one panel, and it would blow your mind. Isn't that interesting? You know, and, yeah. Anyway, go on. Wow. Uh, what was it like working with George? Paris? Yes. Yeah, George, because you know, I worked with Tuska. And, oh, right, um, right, yeah. Sorry, George. Well, both of them. Well, let's take uh, George Paris at first. What was it like working George with George Paris first. I mean, uh... Uh, George uh, was doing uh, four books a month when I uh, started at Marvel, and they were all group books. I mean, 
penciling four books a month. Yeah. And they're like the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, the Inhumans, and something else. And uh, Defenders, maybe, I don't know. But I mean, like, holy cow, you know. Yeah, that's a lot George, of I mean, he put the work into it, man. He, you know. I mean, he did, did, never skimped on anything. No, he sure doesn't. Draw every brick in every wall. But anyway, um, uh, you know, he, so he was uh, among the books of the Avengers until when I arrived from the Avengers. So is that why he, there uh, were so many fill-in artists during this run here? It's because he was always on four, four books? Well, the thing is, no, he was on four books a month, and he was perfectly well keeping up with them okay. for a long time. All right. Then about the time I came in, I think probably, well, toward the end of my associate editor year, or right after I started as editor-in-chief, George, um, he had some problems. You know, personal problems, something we used to be talking about here. Right. And uh, and that started uh, falling him down. I mean, he, he asked, this is to deal with in his, in his life that, that uh, okay. you know, you don't even know about it. And I knew because, I mean, we'd become buddies and friends. I'd go to his house, hang out, you know, a party, and we'd go, and, you know, we'd spend as much time together as, you know, as you'd think for two people working together. And uh, so, but he started having trouble doing that. I know the sad thing was that he just signed a contract to do four books a month. Well, when you got a contract, you get paid for four books a month, but they also, there's a quota, you know, they expect to see the pages. Right. But it kept falling behind. And, um, uh, so, uh, uh, I think his last, I don't know what else he had, but one of his last holdouts was the Avengers. And he, he had all the enthusiasm and stuff like that. He just, he just been, uh, he was a little worn down by life at that point. And, um, so, uh, uh, he, he was very enthusiastic. He was always wonderful to work with. And he was the kind of guy where, you know, I told you, like, uh, you know, if you're doing a Marvel style, you give the artist a plot. And if it's if it's Kirby drawing it or if it's Ditko, they're gold because they'll take it and run with it and they'll make it great. They understand what it is. They deliver the drama. They might even throw in a silver surfer that you didn't expect. You know, towards uh, the same way. You know, you give him a plot and when the pencils came in, a lot of times you're surprised. Yeah. <laughs> There's stuff in there that you didn't expect. But guess what? It was all good stuff. Wow. So I didn't care. It was fun. I mean, and George, they threw me some curveballs, but they weren't, it wasn't real problems. It was just like, oh, well, okay. Oh, I'll go that way. And, uh, you know, so anyway, uh, it, it was wonderful working with him. And, and we started out doing the Corvax saga together. It was mostly his idea. He basically came in and sat down with me one day. He said, I want to do one story with a million people on it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, thanks, buddy. Yeah. You know, so, and then in, after I don't know how many issues, he uh, bailed out on me uh, for good and valuable reasons. He wrote me a nice, very sweet letter. You know, I mean, like, it's not like he didn't see me every once in a while, but he wrote me a very sweet letter explaining how DC had offered him the Justice League. And it was his childhood dream. Wow, yeah. And he just had to do it, you know. Right. And I said, God bless you, you know, go and be happy. So I don't know if he did the Justice League or not, but he did Teen type, and that worked out. But, uh, you know, I mean, I certainly didn't want to stand in his way. I just wanted him to be happy. Of course. Uh, yeah, so so anyway, but we when 
work together. He throw me these challenges, and, and uh, you know, it's one of the best things that ever happened to me. What was it like working with George Cheska? George, George is great. He's an older guy. wasn't hip, <laughs> okay, more than like up to date. And also, he couldn't hear. He, he had a hearing impairment. Okay. And uh, the first time I found that out, is George came into the office and I was going over some work he'd done. He's just staring at me, right? And everybody's laughing at me. I have no idea why. And then finally, like he just kind of shrugs and walks away. And somebody said, "You know, he can't hear you." I said, "No, I didn't know that." Oh, and they were just—they were just like you know playing a trick on me. But uh, <laughs> but after that, so I, I I tried to do everything in writing. And George, I think he worked hard. He was he was you know honest and faithful, and and, and he did well. He he wasn't uh, the uh, powerful force that George Perez was, but uh, he was a total professional, and uh, I liked him a lot. It was pretty much the end of his career, right about then. Uh, right. I mean, retiring but uh he was he was a really nice guy once i realized at the right day um but uh yeah it's good good guy and you also worked with sal Busema quite a bit um, on your avengers run what was it like yeah I mean, him? well uh, that was up to now uh you have to understand in those days okay a lot of some some artists get heat for this and they don't deserve it in those days, uh, everything was late. All right, uh, the, it was it was a disaster. Like I said, Engelhart one one year didn't deliver at least four months uh-huh. on a monthly book. You know, and that was like that was like way too common. Also, in those days, see, after Stan, when Stan was was the editor of Marvel, he never called himself editor in chief. When he was the editor, it's a very small organization. It was Stan, and he did everything creative. Everybody was in charge of anything, everything creative. He was in charge of anything he wanted, but he was in charge of everything creative. He had Saul Brodsky as his sort of right-hand man. Right. And Saul, he left anything that was legal, technical, financial, or complicated to Saul. Right? Or anything you didn't want to deal with, like, uh, you have to tell this guy he's fired. <laughs> okay. Anything like that. And, uh, you know, so, uh, so Saul did everything else. He had a couple of good art people, uh, John O'Meara, who was there, uh, Maurice Severin, uh, um, and a couple of production people, not many. I mean, it was a very small group. And, uh, and there was, you didn't need an organization because Stan was the creative and Saul did everything else, you know, and then that was it. There was the organization. So when Stan stepped down and Roy Thomas was brought in as editor in chief, if there was no existing organization. And uh, so Roy was the first, I guess. I mean, I don't think he ever built an organization. I don't know what background and business background Roy has. Um, but, uh, and also at that point, the chaos was building because when Stan ran Marvel, it was, they were limited by independent news. I think the 12 books a month for a long time. I don't know what, what it grew to, but, right. but then, when Marvel was bought by Perfect Chemical, which became Cadence Industries, mm-hmm. they happened to own a distributor called Curtis Circulation. Right. And so Marvel's circulation went to Curtis, and all of a sudden there's no limits. And all of a sudden the number of titles triples. Wow. Under Roy. Okay. So all of a sudden there's a massive amount of titles and many more writers and all this stuff going on. 
But Roy inherited Stan's organization. He had himself and a production manager. Uh, Saul had left, so the production manager was a guy named John Verporten. Okay. Well, might have left. He might have left right after I started. I don't know. But but the production manager for most of the time was a man named John Verporten. And and he, Roy didn't really do anything to build an organization, create an organization. Uh, he had hired more people, more people to proofread, more people to, you know, pace things up and stuff like that. But basically, Roy stuck to the creative, and he let John Verborden run everything else. All right? Uh, and uh, so John Verborden was generally the one giving out assignments and trying to get people to deliver and, you know, uh, giving pages to anchors and, 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 you know, basically almost running everything. Right, running the bullpen, dealing with the planner. There was a guy named Mel Shipman who was supposed to be the planner, but mostly it was John. At any rate, so uh, uh, you know that was that was kind of chaotic, and, and you know, uh, um, in a way, John reporting was in a terrible situation because it's sort of like he had responsibility for everything to be on time. But he really didn't have total power. You know, for what he said, I want. Gary Friedrich to write this, well, you know, and Gary Friedrich falls off the edge of the earth for three months. What's John going to do? You yeah, know, right. yeah, uh, yeah. So, so, uh, so there was there was kind of a chaos there, and uh, everything was late, and and so John Report was put in a position of I'm responsible to get this book out. The writer delivered it a month and a half late. Okay, I got to get a guy to draw it real fast. So. He had a couple go-to guys. One of them was Sal Buscema. Okay. Sal was very fast. Okay. Sal also was a tremendous artist. Yeah. So even if he was going fast, he did pretty good. Right. You know, you know, where other guys, if they were doing it real fast, they just hacked that. And then John had his go-to anchors, like Mike Esposito and Vinny Coletta. Yeah. I don't know who else. But um, so, you know, and they worked for John. They don't, you know, their 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 job. They get their paycheck from John. John tells them what to do. John gives them the work. They follow the orders. Cannot tell you how many times John would call Vincent and he would hand him a book. He would say, "Quote ink on paper, three days." <laughs> so here's a guy, and Vinny, Vinny didn't use background guys. Wow, other guys use background guys. Not Vinny. Yeah, Vinny didn't use background guys, but he never failed. Three days, he came in. It might not have been the greatest in the world, but it was done. Okay? Huh. And and so so that's what the rules were. The rules were, you know, all right, I, I can't wait around uh, for, uh, uh, you know, Barry Wintersmith to do this. I'm going to get uh, Joe Blow, and Joe Blow will do it, and it ain't great, but, you know, and I'm going to get Mike because you know, it, and it looks even worse. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, but that was it. Yeah, it's, it's done. It's out. Right. It's out. Wow. You know, and, and so that's how it was, and, and, and that's that's the way it went. And the only people who didn't get that treatment were Roy himself, because Roy commandeered the best of the best. John Buscema, you'll notice that uh, uh, he had the same. Joe Rosen lettered all his books. Yeah. Joe was among the best, and Joe lettered small. And I don't know if you noticed, but Roy wrote a lot. <laughs> okay. A lot of copy. So... Uh, uh, and, you know, he had the best thinkers, and so Roy's stuff was all, you know, he, he, he was the editor-in-chief, he got to pick whoever he wanted. 
And a few other guys were big enough big shots that they, they pretty much were able to say, no, I want this guy, I want that guy, and who cares at a plate? Um, so anyway, it was, you know, it's like a, which, which added to the chaos, because who got the favors, who didn't, who had clout and who didn't, it makes a political snake bit. Wow. And, uh, and John wasn't political at all. He just wanted to get the damn books out. He just, he was just trying his best, you know, just to get it done if he could, the best way he could. And just, and that's why, like I said, when they found a guy like me, he was stupid enough to stay up all night. You know, they'd come to me with books to write. And that's also why Bill Mantlow, who I can give you a whole bunch of things that are not great about Bill Mantlow, but if Bill took a job and they said words on paper tomorrow, he had words on paper tomorrow. Wow. Right? Might not be great, but it was there. Right. And uh, see, now the, the, the flip side of that is that the guys who could do that, like Bill Mantlow, who had the willpower to stay up all night, who were glib enough to the early. Maybe the story didn't make any sense, but man, it's words on paper. And it's, you know, sort of marble-sounding words, you know, I will not be denied, and the hammer of Thor, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah you know, I mean, so uh, the, good, the good news for those guys was it was all paid rate. You got paid by how many pages you did. So Bill would welcome it. Oh my God, I get, you know, three nights in a row, I don't sleep, but I make a whole big ton of money. Right, right, yeah. You know, and the other guys were just for fast, and he wasn't a hack by any means, but uh, Doug Bench, he was doing a tremendous amount of work. So, I mean, those are the go-to guys, you know, I mean, and then, like I say, suckers like me who worked all day and then stay up behind the damn book. But, you yeah. know, another guy who you could count on, Claremont. Claremont yeah. would stay up all night and do it because he and that was nothing to do with making the money. That was pride in his work. Oh, okay. So, so anyway, I mean but but uh, yeah Bill Bill did, you know, he hacked and and, and there were some artists that hacked. And honestly, Salvi Summer, the guy you asked me about, he hacked at a very high level. Yeah. But he hacked. <laughs> and he enjoyed making all the money. Right, let me tell you. I mean, you go through sales books, you'll find this amazing number of stock shots. Right. Oh, like, for sure. You love that warm's eye perspective. So, you, you know, the camera's on the floor. So he had no worries about trying to figure out the perspective. He saw anything any size of his mind. Uh, a lot of, you know, absolutely standard shots. He did a lot of rectilinear mouths and with the, with the spittle, you know. Yep. I, I don't know. So, uh, Sometimes you do get a foul book or you get it inked by some some maniac like Bob McLeod. It would come back and be gorgeous. <laughs> right, out. right. Well, I feel well, that way but, with um, Pablo's Marcos. He makes yeah, Marcos, he makes, uh, Marcos work. He, yeah. he, Pablo was he was kind of the dictators of his time. He had a very bold style, yeah. very straightforward. You know, but it was all there. It was all done. It was all right. But he made talent. Yeah, he made Sal's stuff look great. Yeah, he did, and, and he. Um, I, I think he lived on Long Island. It, it seemed to me I remember jobs so desperate that I would I would drive out to Long Island someplace. I had a car. I lived way out in Queens. I had a car, and uh, deliver him pages and go back the next morning and pick him up. <laughs> wow! <laughs> I mean, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but he was hey, Pablo. He was great. I mean, he. Uh, he always, we always got along pretty well. Good. 
Is there anything you are working on now that you would like to tell our listeners? I mean, I do mostly commercial work that none of them are ever going to see. Uh, other than that, I I appear. I go to conventions, and they they pay me to sit there and sign my name and and uh, you know tell my crazy old story like I've been telling you. Yeah, they are great and, crazy old stories. Well, I have a, <laughs> I have a, I have a couple of big books. I'm going to sell and tell books, and uh, all sorts of little souvenirs and items from uh, let's see, it's 52 years now of comics. Wow. And. Uh, you know, I show my stuff, and but you know, I, I mean, like I, I, I don't. Uh, I'm available. I am. I'm here if they, if they ever want me. And they, they don't seem to want me a lot, but I, I do occasional um, little indie jobs. People call me up. Would you do this? You know, okay. Well, how much do you charge? I say, well, I don't know. How much can you pay? <laughs> and they, you know, so so I, one guy says, well, I'll give you a top rate. I said, what's that? It's $25. I said, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, these guys, they, they can't afford $200 a page or $300 a page. Right. So, uh, so anyway, I do a couple of those. I just did one for, uh, oh, what's the name of this company? I think it's called American Mythology. American okay. Mythology. Yeah, it's a little indie, indie company. And uh, they have a book. Uh, it's uh, put together for them by a guy named uh, J.C. Vaughn. B-A-U-G-H-N. And um, uh, it's called Bedtime Stories for Impressionable Children. Oh. Uh, number one. Yeah, I think I've heard of that. Okay. Yeah, anyway, so uh, so they, they just did a new Bedtime Stories, and, and Jeff called me up and asked me if I'd write one. I said, yeah, sure, fine, you know. Uh, so I said, uh, you know, what's it pay? He said, well, uh, how about a hearty handshake? I said, that'll <laughs> Awesome. So, uh, you know, yeah, so anyway, mostly I make my living doing uh, little projects for, uh, I don't know, lots of commercial customers you've never heard of. And, and uh, um, like I said, I go to these conventions, go to 12 conventions this year. Yeah. That's not too many, but, you know, if they want me, I'll go. Wow. Great. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's been good. I got to see Stan in Denver. I've seen Stan and seen him for years. He was there. And uh, he or I was there. And he, this last, about uh, Father's Day, I think, 2016. So he sent a couple of his minions over. And they asked me if I if I could stick around until the show closed and I could go over and see him. I said, yeah, sure. So I went over and seen him for, oh, God, I don't know, like more than a decade. But, you know, we picked it up. Right where we left it off, okay. and that uh, was terrific. And you know, every night at a certain time, he has to get back to his hotel room because he always calls his wife every night at a certain time, oh, what which is real sweet and cute. Yeah. I mean, he's ninety-four now, and uh, so we talked for hours, twenty, twenty-five minutes. Just had a good old time. And he made them take a picture of us together. Uh, I didn't even have to pay, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he signed it for me. He said, "Print it out right now," you know. And because uh, they usually print it out the next day, but uh, uh, so anyway, I got to see him. It was nice. Stan and I uh, worked very closely together, you know, for a long time—twelve years. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. That's great. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, it was fun, and that's what I do. And uh, I'm, you know, I, there's there's an image comics project where they want me to be a writer, but I'm not supposed to talk about it yet. Okay. It's, uh, it's kind of a big deal. It's got it's got some 
big name artists, and uh, there's going to be several writers involved. I guess it's sort of a like an several stories kind of that thing? come together. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, it's it's you know, so I'd be on one of them, and, I, and they've asked me if I would sort of. Um, I don't know, not be an editor, but kind of, if they can send me everything and have me look at it, see if I have any suggestions. And I said, sure, of course, I don't care. They're actually going to pay me, go figure. Nice. Real money. So that'll be nice. Yeah. Jim, this has been fascinating. What what an interesting period of Marvel history. And I've read a little bit about it, but uh, your insights are just incredible. Thanks.